Today we're going to continue our journey through the first letter of the Apostle John and it's now two months ago since we looked at chapter three and um, as I only speak once a month it's um, last July that we started looking at this letter, last July. Uh, We've covered chapters one to three in five previous talks and today we will continue with chapter four and you might be saying to yourself, Thank goodness there's only one after this. (laughs) Right, now in view of this um, long time span, I think it will be beneficial to remind ourselves of the main reason for John writing his letter and also the most important points that we discovered in the first three chapters. So the main reason for John writing to the churches in Asia Minor was his concern that false teaching in the shape of Gnosticism and false prophets were beginning to manifest themselves and infiltrate um, the believers in the churches. Um, Because of this, in his letter, John laid out the fundamentals of the Christian faith and set out simple tests, you may remember we did that, uh, which the believers could apply to their own lives and situations to assure them that they were true believers and true Christians. And of course, they had to pass the tests. That was the the key. In a nutshell, this is achieved by being faithful to the word or sound doctrine. Um, The theme of sound doctrine um, versus false teaching, together with sub-themes of faith, obedience and love, recur again and again throughout the letter. And we will meet with them again uh, when we come to chapter 4, especially the subject of love. So let's look at um, briefly what we um, saw from the first three chapters. Uh, So have your Bibles open at um, chapter 1, the first letter. And um, I'll quote some of the verses. You can look at, we're not going to read all of this, obviously. But I'll quote some verses and you can perhaps scan them as I'm um, talking about them. Right from the beginning of chapter one, John effectively counters the erroneous belief and teaching of the Gnostics concerning a proper understanding of Jesus. The proper understanding of Jesus is that he is fully God and he is fully man. And that belief, when we have that belief, it produces obedience to his commands. Obedience, in turn, produces love for God and love for fellow believers. And this results in true fellowship with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit and fellow believers all together. And you see that in verse three. The result of this fellowship is that we experience this joy in our lives. And when we have that joy, we can be assured that we're walking in the light of Christ. See that from verses six and seven. Now, also in chapter one, um, John brings our attention to the reality of sin. And this is mainly because some Gnostics believed that even if they sinned with impunity, it would not adversely affect their spiritual life or their relationship to God. And you may remember this is because they thought that the spirit was wholly good and the body was wholly bad or evil. 
The Gnostics had lost sight of the Old Testament command to be holy as the Lord your God is holy. Um, It meant also that the Gnostics could believe that Jesus had the form of God, but did not also have to be human. That excused um, the, uh, the thought of that, if they could sin with impunity. Now, John again corrects this misunderstanding by asserting that Jesus bore our flesh so that he could be like us and yet without sin. And he would therefore be the perfect sacrifice and his his, uh, shed blood would cleanse us from all sin. You see that in verse 7. And moving on to chapter 2, John says, firstly, that those who are truly enlightened or born again and know God are obedient to his commands and keep his words. Now, just a, a few words about those two words, know and keep. Um, throughout this letter, John uses the word know about 40 times and the word keep about 10 times. Just a couple of this is not exclusive to chapter two, a couple of um, instances of that use. In um, 2.21, you can look at that one if you like, he tells his readers that they know the truth. Um, Don't bother to turn to these others. In in chapter 3.24, he tells them that they know that Christ abides in them. And in chapter 4, verse 13, which we haven't even looked at, it tells us that we know that we abide in God. So that reciprocal abiding, and that comes up time and time again. When he uses the word keep, he uses it six times out of the ten in respect to keeping God's, God's commands. Now, uh, a second point, as I intimated earlier, is that obedience issues in love for God. You see that in verse 5 of chapter 2, and love for fellow believers. You can see that in verse 10. And as I said, we hear a lot more about love in chapter 4. Now, John also issues a warning to his readers, uh, the negative side, do not love the world or the things of the world, verse 15. And you may remember that he goes on to list the three things of the world which the devil used to tempt both Eve in the Garden of Eden and Jesus in the wilderness. 16, verse 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And nothing has changed. The devil still tempts us with the same things. The third major point is... um, John's warning about the coming of the Antichrist with a capital A and the many Antichrists with a small A that have already come. And remember, the Antichrist with a capital A is used to denote the final world ruler at the end times, whereas Antichrist could be described as, uh, with a small A as anyone, really, who opposes God, any and all who oppose God. And um, you may also remember that John um, applied the name Antichrist to those that had left the fellowship. Uh, That's in verse 19 of chapter 2. He said that it showed that they were not truly members of the community of faith. Verse 19, if they had been, they would have continued with us, he says. 
And this brings us to the fourth point, which is the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which is mentioned in verses 20 and 27, which gives the truly born again believer the strength and power to persevere in their faith, abiding in the Father and Son and receiving the promise of eternal life. Verse 25. Okay, we move on to chapter 3 now. Chapter 3 in the main deals with the subject of love. Firstly, the love of the Father. Behold, what, man, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. This is verse 1. That we should be called children of God. Secondly, we are children of God because we have put our faith in Jesus. We have repented of our sins. We've been cleansed by his blood and born again of his spirit. And now we are called to respond to this amazing love by being pure, verses 3 and 6, by practising righteousness, verse 7, and loving our brothers and sisters, verse 10. And further, this call to love must be worked out indeed. It must actually happen in practice and in truth, verse 18. And this again brings out the theme of obedience. So we have believing in this chapter, loving and obeying, the three recurring themes of the letter all coming out in chapter three. And that brings us now to chapter four. So we're going to read all of this. It's only 21 verses. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of, go are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that, he might live, that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as saviour of the world. 
Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God, whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Now in the first six verses of this chapter, John gives a further warning concerning the Antichrist and the false prophets. In chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, you don't have to turn to this, but John warned against the presence of Antichrist among those who had gone out from the fellowship. His second warning here is this time against the spirit of Antichrist, which is inspiring the false prophets and the false teaching. And again, John introduces the idea of tests. Now, generally in verse 1, John says, test the spirits to see whether they are of God. And we must be reminded Christians should always have a healthy scepticism regarding any teaching, not just biblical teaching, any teaching. Think of newspapers, especially what we read in that. But have a healthy scepticism in matters of faith and doctrine, especially. And we should search the scriptures for the truth, as did the Bereans in the book of Acts, you may remember. Uh, Specifically in verses two and three. He says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. And the reality of the incarnation and the manhood of Jesus Christ are central to our faith. And it may be profitable here to consider some consequences of this denial if we didn't believe it. It could mean... Or it would mean that Jesus could not be our example. If Jesus was not a real man, living under the same conditions as men, he could not show us how to live. I'm talking about men and women, of course. He could not be our high priest who opens the way to God. The high priest must be, as the Hebrews, uh, writer to the Hebrews describes, uh, this is Hebrews 4.15, don't bother to turn there, I've got the whole verse here. It says, for we do not have a high priest, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathise with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So in other words, Jesus had to be like us in every way, except sinless rather than sinful. And um, if Jesus could not identify himself with those he came to save, how could he be our saviour? If he did not come in the flesh, it denies that Jesus um, came to save both body and soul. And this in turn denies that the body can ever become the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
So if the spirit is altogether good and the body is evil, there cannot be a reconciliation between God and man. God is holy, pure and good. And we need to praise God for that amazing truth of the incarnation. And here and now, as Tom said, um, there can be real communion between God and man. There can be life now, life now. So Jesus was not only the son of God, he was the son of man. And he said so many times, you look up the references to son of man in the Bible, there are loads of them. Um, just one, if you want to note, Matthew eight twenty. read that when you get home. It um, shows that Jesus is saying that he is fully man, basically. Okay, so returning to the text, the second half of verse three, John says, that the spirit of Antichrist is now already in the world. And um, I think you can see in this letter that there was a conflict between the false teachers and John, but it wasn't um, a battle of leadership for the church or anything like that, or a personality clash, but it's what Paul spoke about in Ephesians 6. You may remember it's not a battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. We, as believers, though, do not need to be fearful because we have the spirit of Christ living in us. Verse 4 I'm looking at now. And he is greater than he who is in the world. Yeah. And um, in verses five and six, uh, John distinguishes between false teachers who will be listened to by the world and the true teachers who will be listened to by those who are of God. This implies those who are of God implies having knowledge of God through fellowship with him and by loving him and abiding in him and his word. Okay. Now, seven verses seven to 21 are all about love, really. And um, the word used for love in this passage is consistently agape love. And that um, I probably don't need to remind you about this, but it's a love by choice. It doesn't refer to the will or the emotions. It's loving someone by choice. It describes the unconditional that God uh, love. Sorry, unconditional love that God has for the world. It always seeks the highest good of the other person and doesn't look for any return. OK, so we work through these verses bit by bit. Verse seven, beloved or dear friends in verse seven seems to indicate that John is speaking to the true believers now and impressing upon them God's command to love one another. Love is of God or has its origin in God. When we are born again, we receive God's nature. And since his nature is to love, God's children should reflect that love in their lives. We know God when we keep his commands. In verse 8, and also repeated in verse 16, we have the amazing statement that God is love. And I'd like to think about that um, in isolation just for a moment. God is love. The explanation for creation, a God of love 
wouldn't exist in isolation. He must have someone to love and someone to love him. It's the explanation for free will. God doesn't desire robots, but looks for the free response of everyone's, every single person's heart. It's the explanation of providence. God's love sustains and cares for his creation. It explains redemption. God is righteous and just and holy, but sin must be punished. But his love has given us a remedy for sin. It explains the promise of eternal life. God's love will readjust in eternity all the imbalances of life on earth. Now coming back to the remainder of verse 8, we can see from the meaning of agape that everything that God does is founded upon love. Those who fail to love cannot have any true knowledge of God and cannot have been born again and partaken of his divine nature. Having stated in verse 8 that God is love, verse 9 shows us the full extent of God's love in that he sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And not only did God pour out his wrath on his beloved son in place of us as sinners, but through Jesus in um, chapter 3, verse 14. This is a favourite verse of mine. You might like to just flick back to that. It says that we have passed from death to life. Is that life again that Tom spoke about earlier? Life now as well. Jesus is the bringer of life both now and eternally. We no longer just exist in this world. We have a purpose. And in the strength, power and peace of Jesus, we may live in love and show that love to one another and to the world. Verse 10, John explains that agape love can be given to God only when it has first been received from God. God first loved us and his son as the propitiation of our, for our sins is the acceptable sacrifice which restores our broken relationship with God the Father. In verse 11, John reminds us again that true love is unselfish and sacrificial in um, 3.16, you may like to flip back, this is a very important verse as well, very hard to um, grasp this one in our personal lives. Verse 16 of chapter 3, this is the example that Jesus has given us. As he laid down his life for us, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Very difficult. Much like Paul, who calls the Ephesians to be imitators of God, John is saying that we must be like God. As children of God, we must be holy because he is holy. We must be merciful because he is merciful. And we must love God because he, sorry, we must love because he loves. As well as loving God, we must love each other. Now in verse 12, the phrase, no one has seen God at any time is quite difficult uh, it could be that John is refuting claims by the false teachers that they had seen visions of God. They claim to know all things and all mysteries, these Gnostics, and have some superior knowledge. But um, the verse continues and John says that if we love each other, we know that God is present with us. And that's the important thing, I think. John was no longer in the, sorry, Jesus was no longer in the world physically 
to demonstrate uh, God's love, but his love is perfected in us, has been perfected, is being perfected throughout the church. That is the fellowship of believers. And I just thought of a, a couple of other scriptures which um, tend to support that view. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Paul tells the Corinthian church that we are ambassadors for Christ. So love originated in God, was manifested in Jesus and is witnessed to, hopefully, and demonstrated by his children, us. Verses 13 to 16 are really all about assuring us that we live in God and he lives in us. Just go back to verse 12 briefly. It says, if we love one another, God abides in us. Now, we've got this reciprocal thing in uh, chapter 324. Don't bother to turn to these. Um, but in 324, John says, if we obey God's commands, we abide in him and he abides in us. In chapter 4, verse 13, John says, we know of this reciprocal abiding because he has given us of his spirit. And um, in verses 14 and following, John may be referring to his personal experience of knowing Jesus in the flesh. But you could say we see by faith that the cross of Christ was for our sins and our salvation. We see through faith. We confess that Jesus is our Lord and Saviour by our faith. And we see and live in the presence of God's love through our faith. Verses 17 and 18 talk about boldness, or as some versions of the Bible state, confidence. And its opposite is fear. So the perfection or completeness of love gives us confidence in respect to the time of judgment. John has already in 2.28 said, And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So again, confidence is a sign that our love is mature. And by the same token, we will be free from fear. And that does not mean, of course, that we do not need to show reverence to our God. The kind of fear we are free from is that which speaks of torment or punishment at the last times. The gnashing of teeth, if you like, as some of the Bible passages say. Um, but as children of God, of course, and forgiven sinners, the wrath of God is something that we will never experience. Verse 19 re reiterates that John is what um, that John is talking about, not natural love, sorry, but agape love, which originates from God the Father. And um, verse 20 is another of John's tests. If we have the love of God in our hearts, we cannot fail to love our brothers because we have been set free to do so, just as they have been set free. God loves us and them and expects us to love them as well. If we do not love our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we fail the test and the love of God cannot be resident in our hearts. Verse 21 summarises the whole chapter, I think. We cannot separate that um, royal command of Jesus. Whoever loves God must love his brother also. So to summarise and conclude 
um, what we've heard in chapter four, we have uh, five reasons why Christians love. We love because God is the essence of love. Love is inherent in all that he does. God first loved us. We love because we are called to follow the example of Jesus' selfless and sacrificial love. Our love is a witness to the world of God's love. Our love assures us that we live in God and God lives in us. And our ability to love shows that we are forgiven sinners. Jesus has paid the price for us. Hallelujah. Um, just to close, um, Hillary asked me if I had any title for this talk. And I said to her, why not more love? And um, I thought about the song, more love, more power, more of you in my life. Do you remember it? And it says, um, I or we will worship you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with, with all of our strength. And we will seek your face with all of our hearts, minds and strength. So let's pray along those lines. Um, that we may be like that, have more love, more power, more of Jesus in our lives. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the assurance that this letter of John gives to believers. All these tests, Lord, that if we love, then we know that we abide in you and you abide in us. We thank you and praise you for this letter. We thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, we do pray that we will be um, able to worship you with all of our hearts, our minds and strength. We will be able to seek you with all of our hearts, our minds and strength. Lord, that you would bring us to your word time and time again, all the time that we have this word available, Lord. Help us to love it and love you and love your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen.